There it is. Was that me or was that you? Okay. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have been with us thus far in singing and reading your word and praying. We ask you now to be with us even more in wisdom and the power of your spirit to illumine the truth of your word, to apply it to our lives so that we may be transformed and we may be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we may walk out of here looking more like Jesus, abandoning sin, repenting from it, and loving and honoring your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I want us to start today by considering a few practical um, applications of our lives, right? I want, I want you to think of how people perceive you when you come to church. What is your reputation when you come to church? And then, would that be the same reputation, reputation you have if you were hanging out with your friends doing whatever, playing video games, going to the mall, fill in the blank, or even at school. And then would that be the same reputation that you would have when you are on your family vacation for the summer with your family, with your parents, with your siblings? The reason why I want us to consider that is because how we behave most times changes according to our setting. And as Christians, we are not exempt from that. Even though we are Christians, how we are in church, in the church setting, is completely different. Whether it be a formal or informal, it's different to how we are when we are doing other activities. School, work, home, out and about, hanging out, whatever. And I'm not saying those things are essentially bad because it would be weird to be at a sporting event watching your favorite team play and not cheer for your favorite team, right? So there, there, some settings do call for us to behave certain ways. But it's almost like our personalities change. It's almost like we have different personalities depending on who's around us. Forget the setting. It all depends on who is around you as well. If you are around your parents, or if you're around older people, or if you're around your friends, it, your, your behavior, your personality changes. Now, the way that you say hi to me, per, per se, versus the way that you greet one another is going to be different. Right? I want us to consider these things and see it through us, through the view of... That builds our reputation. That is how the outside world see us individually. I was reading through some article this week and I stumbled upon some statistics. There's a Pew Research 
that was done back in March. And it was about how people perceive Christians, how the world perceives Christians. Most specifically, I, I um, focused on evangelical Christians, right? Now, there was, there was data for Catholics and data for Muslims and other religions or atheists. All of that is there. But I wanted to share with you guys what I found in terms of how the world how favorably are evangelical Christians looked? How, what is the view of evangelical Christians? 28% view Christians, so evangelical Christians, as favorable versus 27% say they have the view that is not favorable. Among Americans who are not born-again Christians and evangelical Protestants, um, 32% unfavorable. So you add 32 and 28, you get to somewhere about 60% unfavorable versus 18 being favorable. So we are seen by the world as being less favorable. That is our reputation as evangelical Christians, as people that believe in the gospel and who are born-again Christians. And I started asking the question, why does the world not see us favorably? And the Christian answer to that is because we are not of the world. Even though we live in the world, the world is not supposed to love us. Jesus promises this to us, and we are not to be loved by the world, and the world is not supposed to accept us because if we were of the world, then they would have accepted us. But because we are of Christ, they're not supposed to see us favorably. And then more practically, um, that same article quoted um, uh, the National Association of Evangelicals. This is a, an association, the president, and he says this back in 2020, I quote, we are in a season in which the evangelical faith is being narrowly defined and misunderstood by many with long-term ramifications to our gospel witness. And he says again, too many, especially young people and people of color, are alienated, alienated by evangelical Christianity and how it is presented in the public, which is diagnosing why are people being turned off? Uh, young people are seeing us as being less favorable and we are alienating ourselves. And the reason for that is because of the, our reputation as Christians, especially evangelical Christians. It's mostly nowadays defined by our political views or our social views, whether or not we are less racist or whether or not we vote one way or another, whether or not we accept some social norms and, and everything else and our stance about abortion and LGBTQ rights. That's how we're defined, not the gospel defining us. Not the message of the gospel. That's the way the world sees us. But in our passage today, we are instructed practically from God's will what is the church's reputation supposed to be? And we are going to look at, in our passage, three distinctive traits that you must demonstrate consistently as a church 
because it is the will of God for you in Christ. And that should define our reputation as a church. Hence, the title. And here are these three distinctive traits, which will be our outline for today. And if you can read that, it's to rejoice in verse 16, to pray in verse 17, and to give thanks in verse 18. And as we get into the first one of those distinctive traits, as a, this is what should define us as a Christian. This is what should define you as a Christian. You ought to rejoice, Paul says to the church of Thessalonica. And if you remember this church that Paul planted in Thessalonica was in the middle of suffering, in the middle of not being seen favorably. I mean, remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes in, he preaches the gospel in the, in the synagogue, and then people get converted, and a whole riot breaks out. And they're looking for Paul, and they can find him, so they get to the next person, whoever is hosting Paul, Jason, they go and they beat him, and they say, this guy is a Christian now. He's teaching something contrary to our belief, and and, and Christians are being persecuted and not being seen favorably, and their reputation was not accepted the same way that our reputation in the world is not accepted. And in the midst of that, Paul tells this church, rejoice. Have joy. When should you rejoice? When things are going good. Whenever you meet together on Sunday mornings and preach, uh, and sing and pray and people around you are believing the same things that you believe and they look the same way that you do and they believe the same thing that you believe, that's when you rejoice. Is that what Paul says? No, that's not what Paul says to them. He says rejoice always. It's a clear imperative. Gladness should be a distinctive trait of a Christian, of a church. Do you have joy? Do you have gladness? And this should be, uh, this is the first distinctive trait of the church that you should demonstrate always. And I want you to, to notice how, you use it, how Paul uses this word always, and then he uses the word without ceasing, or the phrase without ceasing in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he says, in everything, give thanks. And you notice that he's saying this in all kinds of circumstances, at all times, and all the time. That's what always means. All the time, at all times, and under all circumstances. So there's a frequency, how often should you do it? All the time. And what season of your life should you do it? Or what, what time of the day or what time of the week should you be rejoicing? At all times. Under what circumstances should you be rejoicing? Under all circumstances. That's what that word always means. But always though? Always? I mean, I can see when things are going well, how easy it is to rejoice. How, to, how easy it is to be filled with joy when things are going my way, 
when no one is coming against me and no one is fighting against me and no one is persecuting me and we're comfortable, we're sitting here, okay, we can kind of see it. But when, what if and times are bad? Because it's easy to rejoice and be glad. Even in the time of need, even in the time of persecution, Paul says you should rejoice. Why should you rejoice even in a time of persecution? Where does that joy come from that allows you to actually rejoice even when you're being defined as hateful, defined as backwards, defined as, defined as being an extremist. If you remember some months ago, we talked about how a huge percentage of our population, our culture now sees the very subtle action of praying in public as a sign of being an ex a religious ex extremist. So if you ever go to Chick-fil-A and you order your spicy chicken sandwich and you sit down to eat and right before you eat it, you close your eyes and you give thanks to God for, for Chick-fil-A and for the food and for the enjoyment of this food, the world around you, a huge percentage of the population around you may see you as a fanatic, as a religious extremist. And that, by the way, will define your, your behavior, right? Because you don't want to be seen as that. You don't want to stick out. So you're less likely to pray next time. And that plays and your conscience gives you a nudge and say, hey, it doesn't matter what people think, you are supposed to pray and then there's a battle and then you start struggling through that. Even through that struggle, Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice always. Why? Because you have seen Christ in faith. The source of your, your, your rejoicing is not what the outside world perceives you as. The source of your joy is that, that you know who Christ is. You have seen Christ and you have received him and he, is, he's, you, he dwells in you and you dwell in him in faith. You have experienced the power of the Spirit. And you continue to experience the power of the Spirit as he leads you into your life of sanctification. So, and, and, and you have this sure hope that one day, as we read in our, in our scripture reading, you are going to spend eternity in love and peace and joy in the kingdom of God with Him. So you have these things, you possess these things, and that is the source of your rejoicing. If the source of rejoicing is whether or not the polls are favorable to, towards the evangelical Christians, then... It's hard to rejoice always. You can only rejoice and your life will be filled with the opposite of rejoicing, which is misery. And that's how the world perceives us. That's how, that's really, that's why a lot of young people are turned off by the message of the gospel because they think it's a life of misery. It's a life that doesn't offer joy. It's just a bunch of rule following. 
And I don't want you to hear these messages, especially the past few weeks, as we are talking about this practical implications of the gospel in the church. The, the goal of this is not follow these rules so that you can be Christians. That would be legalism. That's not what Paul is teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what I'm trying to teach or preach. Nor is it feel good because you are morally better than the next person. We are not preaching moralism either. It's for us to see Christ and what he has accomplished in his life, death and resurrection. That's where the source of joy comes. And if your life is built on that cornerstone and you don't trust on any kind of frame of, of mind and any kind of framework of life and worldview, then you can rejoice always. Because your life is not defined or limited to this temporal realm. It's not just about what we see here. Right, Romans 14, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. It's love, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Your life is not just about what you do here. Not that what you do here doesn't matter, but what defines your life is eternity. Your life is defined in light of eternity. Because when you trusted in Jesus and you believed what he says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That became your reality. Now you live in a reality that is not just focused on the temporal realm. One commentary puts it this way, rejoicing indicates your orientation toward basic Christian values. How do you see basic Christian values? Your enjoyment of them. Do you enjoy your basic Christian values? Including suffering, by the way. And how your motivations are emotions are determined by those values. I'll say it again. Rejoicing indicates your orientation towards basic Christian values, your enjoyment of them, and how your motivations and emotions, because emotions are important, how you feel matters, are determined by these values. You notice how your motivations and your emotions are actually determined by what, how you perceive Christ, how you perceive the Christian values and Christ-likeness, that's what rejoicing indicates. So your reputation as a church is marked by always rejoicing when things are good. When you see Christ victorious over his opponents, as Luke puts it in Luke 13, 17. As he said this, all his opponents were being put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing. That's a good time to rejoice, right? When you see Jesus being victorious, when Jesus 
His power through His Spirit is giving you victory over sin and lust and worldliness and whatever else that you're struggling with and you see Him victorious and you're being more conformed and you easy to rejoice. You can rejoice always. But not only when He's victorious, but also in suffering. As Peter, as, um, Peter and, and John for the sake of the gospel, are beaten and told not to ever speak of this name, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Don't even speak of him. They get thrown in jail, they get beaten, but they're vindicated. And imagine, they just got let out of prison. Pretty sure their backs sore as they're walking off. Listen to how Luke puts it in Acts 5.41. So as they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, which is the courthouse, so to speak, in the temple, they went rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. They had just suffered shame for the sake of Jesus Christ and they go rejoicing. That's what it means to rejoice always. This is rejoicing. The outflowing of your unity with Christ, your union with Christ. You can always rejoice. You can rejoice always because Christ is with you only on Sundays? No, only when you, when you, um, when you have your devotion time, quiet time uh, for 15 minutes before, before bed or whatever. That's when Christ is with you, right? No, Christ is with you always. Same word. And because He is with you always, Always, whether you're happy, whether your circumstances are sad, whether your circumstances are a cause of shame, whether your circumstances are a place of fear, wherever they are, Christ is with you always. And because Christ is with you always, you rejoice always. You can rejoice always. It's His presence that, that causes you to rejoice. Not some emotional working out of your own imagination. It's Christ who is the cornerstone of your rejoicing. And when you consider that, consider also the second distinctive. Paul says in verse 17, Pray without ceasing. That's what our reputation as a Christian should be. The one who is always joyful, the one who is always rejoicing under all circumstances, but also one that is praying without ceasing. Notice that temporal adverb again, without ceasing. Now this is not saying 
that you should go 24 7 365 and 366 on a on a leap year always just uttering prayer God, as you're talking to people just pray in your head or something that's not what paul is saying this is the quality the kind of life that a christian should have the church should have it's describing the resolve it's describing the uninterrupted nature it's describing the, the, the presence of prayer and dependence on God's will without omitting it from your life. That's what this without ceasing is describing. So what is prayer? Prayer in the Bible is really the expression of the believer's experience of the proximity to God and dependence on God. Prayer is your experience of proximity to God, your closeness to God, how close are you and how dependent are you. That's all it is. It's an expression of that. And Christian prayer is this confidence or confident expression of your soul's dependence on God's power. It's how you're confidently approaching and saying, I am dependent on your power and I want to draw from your power, God. And sometimes that expression finds its way by, through words, so you pray out loud using your words. You can sing them. You can meditate on that. Sometimes it's quiet prayer. But however it finds that expression, it is your soul's dependence on God's power in all things. It is the expression of a life of worship. Not just worship whenever the guitar and the piano is playing and, and it's put to, to melody and, and music, but the life of worship towards God, which originates from your heart. Prayer comes from your heart, from the depth of your soul. This is why the Lord, when He's teaching about prayer and His kingdom in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, he says this, and when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you that they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. It doesn't mean that find a closet somewhere. I mean, if you want to, you can. There's no law against it. But he's talking about the inner person, that deep place of your heart, in your soul. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Again, pray without ceasing does not mean just keep saying the same thing over and over again the whole entire day and all night. 
Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows the desires and the needs of your heart. But prayer is your expression of that need. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. In every circumstance, I am dependent on you, on your grace, on your power, on your presence, on your peace, on your love, on your fill in the blank. Everything that God provides. I am utterly dependent on you. This is the expression of prayer. This is the expression of my life. And my life is defined by that, by my utter dependence of my need for God's power. That's what prayer is. And having defined prayer in this way, it should be clear for us what Paul is saying to the church. There should be clear, distinctive trait in the church that is marked by this constant, unbroken, resolute expression of confidence, confident reliance in God's power. Is that what the world sees? Is that your reputation outside of church? Or consistently and constantly? And again, it's not every second of every hour. Our, our, our prayer and our desires so that it could be that way. And the Lord keeps growing us in grace and supplies us with grace. So our lives are more and more defined by our reliance to his, to, on, on, his, on his power. Yes, but is that? Someone were to look at you and say, this person, you know, reputations is a, it's a really easy thing to say. Oh, I know this person. Oh, he's a very kind person. Or he's, he's very funny. Right? That's your reputation. And the church is defined, is to be defined by the reputation of, hey, very reliant on God's grace. That should be the distinctive trait. This is what we ought to demonstrate to one another and also to the world. And I want you to notice that the, 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 the confidence that we have in prayer, the confidence that you have in prayer is not found in introspection, is not found in finding some kind of resolve in yourself to do better. It's not some kind of internal meditation so that you can be self-dependent, self-reliant, self-confident. That's not Christian prayer. That's not where the confidence comes from. The confidence in prayer is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it makes sense. That this reputation of unceasing prayer in God's, is God's will for you where? What, is he, what does he say in verse 18? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
So every single thing that is, every single character trait or distinctive trait, whether it's rejoicing, whether it's praying, it's God's will for you and it's found in Christ Jesus. It's not found anywhere else. You cannot find God's will by looking inside really, really hard. By trying to go and becoming the smartest person who graduated from Harvard ever. God's will for you is found in Christ. And therefore, God's will to rejoice always is found in Christ. The same way God's will for you to pray without ceasing is also found in Christ. Because Christ is the source and executor of that will. Listen to what he says, or you can take a look at me with what he says in John chapter 14. The Lord himself says, whatever you ask in my name. This is Jesus talking. This will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give you. So your utter dependence is connected, the source is through Christ. The confidence is found because we're asking Him, not in according to our desires, but according to the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's why when we pray, it's, it's almost kind of like um, when we pray, we, we evoke the name of Jesus, right? Or we use it as a sign-off, um, a signature at the end of our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Like we'd say anything else, and then we can say, in Jesus' name, amen. Or we use it in the, in the front end of it. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name, and then we go into prayer. There's nothing inherently wrong with that kind of formula, but it's beyond the formula. We're saying, we're praying according to your will for us, for my life, in that, that's found in Christ Jesus. He is the source of everything that I'm praying for. He is the source of my dependence. Not only He is the source of my dependence in you, but He is the one that executes the power being, the grace being dispensed, the answer that is coming back from, from God. He is the one who executes it. And because our confidence is found in, uh, because He is eternally true and He is eternally reliant and reliable, we can have confidence. The confidence is not in us. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 19, uh, 10 and 19. Therefore, brothers, he says, since we have confidence you notice that? Since we have confidence, that's something that we already possess as believers, to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. 
You see how Jesus is the source of the confidence in prayer? You can unceasingly pray. You can demonstrate this unbroken, uninterrupted reliance and dependence on God because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. So don't hear me say, you should have more of a, uh, you know, you should pray for two hours a day or you should pray more. Yeah, sure, you should pray more and have a better prayer life. Yeah, sure. But it's not a requirement that you must meet in order to be heard by God. See, this is why, this is what the, the, uh, the, the Gentiles thought. That if they said so many words, so eloquently, so well put together, almost like a poem, then God would heal them, hear them. Or if they repeated their prayer over and over and over again, so eloquently, and the more they bug him, and then they, God can then God can respond to them. Or if they did it a certain way, you know, you stand in the middle of it and then you show your piety and your, your religious attitude and you're so committed and you have your eyes closed and you have your hands raised like this and that's how God hears you. And you can, if you're depending on how good your prayer sounds or how often you are praying or what posture of prayer you take, You're really putting your confidence and your efforts. But the writer of Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. This is what we do when we pray. We're communing with God. We're entering into the holy place. We're coming to the throne of grace. And we have confidence not by our own efforts but by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the completed work of Jesus Christ. And this should mark you as a church. This should mark you as a, this should be a reputation as a Christian. This constant and consistent reliance on God's power. Imagine, you're joyful. You can rejoice in all circumstances. And as you're rejoicing and, and the circumstances are hard, you go and you draw on God's power through prayer. You have this attitude of prayer that is unceasing. You're constantly connected to God by your dependence through Christ. And you have this confidence that God hears your prayer and answers your prayer. And because this confidence comes, and then the next thing kind of naturally comes out, you give thanks. You are thankful. That's the third distinct trait of the church that Paul says they should have. And everything give thanks. The totality of the church's character is to be filled with gratitude. 
filled with thanksgiving. But in reality, what is sometimes it's hard for, for, for us to, to, to tell the difference between a Christian and non-Christian. Because the opposite of not having gratitude as a part of your character is to be a complainer. We just complain about everything. It's too hot. And then the weather cools down. Oh, it's too cold. And then it goes, oh, it's too... And then we have a perfect day. Oh, the pollen out there is spring. Every season we can find, oh, I'm tired. I'm like this. And I'm not saying that these things don't affect us and they shouldn't affect you. But your life should not be defined as a, being a complainer. And just this week, as I'm preparing for this, I'm praying for this, I was, I was reminded of this reality and how easy it is for, for us to get into this as I'm waiting for my Chick-fil-A order a couple of days ago. Went on a mobile app, didn't want to wait, so I ordered my food, I drove to Chick-fil-A, and as soon as I, I pulled up, the app crashed and said, there's something wrong with your order. And I didn't have time. I wanted to get it done so quickly. So I'm, I'm, I walk up to the window and I say, hey, I, I got charged. I put the order through, but it's saying now, like, there's a problem with my order. Is it ready yet? And they said, oh, okay, sure. Let me, let me take a look. And then 11 minute passes and no one's coming back to me. Or like some minutes pass and no one's coming back to me. So I say, hey, and I'm, now I'm, I was hungry. Now I'm getting hangry, right? Hungry and angry together. So I'm starting to get cranky a little bit. Now I'm not even sensing this. And I'm saying, man, I'm using this. I'm starting to complain. I'm almost tempted to call, to ask for the manager at this point. Like, give me something else. I, I, just, I just ordered a sandwich and some nuggets and some drinks. Like, you got to give me some treats. I, I want to shake on top of that for my time. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this in my head, and I'm complaining in my head. And I'm reminded, is that what's going to define me? And my joy is being stolen at this time. I'm, I'm no longer happy and excited. So I'm definitely not depending on the Lord's um, power and and his sovereignty at this point. I'm, I'm depending on their speed and, and, and the app and everything else. I'm depending on my ability to explain and all of those things. That's gone out the window just like that, a very subtle way. And I'm reminded that we can be so defined. And if the person that's behind me waiting for the order sees me behave in that way, they wouldn't be able to tell if I was a Christian or not. And if they find out I'm a Christian, then what is the reputation that I'm communicating of Christ? So Paul says, in everything, give thanks. Let that define the totality of your character. Don't be a complainer. In everything, in every circumstance, as the whole person, as the church. Demonstrate this 
attitude of gratitude. Now, I didn't mean to rhyme there. This word for thankfulness is an expression of being pleasant, being graceful, having a favorable attitude. Is that what defines us as Christians? Is that how, like in movies and different series and books even, is that how Christians are portrayed? Is that our reputation? God's will for, for the church is to, is to display this attitude of gratitude. I remember I asked, when I used to work at a school, I asked the librarian, do we have any, any books that are, and I'm, I made it so broad, right? I don't know if it's me being coward or whatever, but that's another conversation for another day. But I just wanted to be broad and say, we have all these books in our library that are, you know, evolution theory, all kinds of other theories. Do we have any kind of books that would inform uh, others of any creationist view, worldview? Like all the other worldviews are represented is a creationist worldview or a Christian worldview represented in the books that we have in this library. And she said, ah, no, nah, not really. I mean, we have some realistic fiction. I don't know what that meant. It's either fiction or real, right? I, I'm still trying to figure that out, racking my brain. Realistic fiction. I'm like, okay, uh, we have some realistic fictions, but even in those, um, we, we have some portrayals of, of characters that have that, but they're portrayed negatively. So people that hold that kind of worldview, a creationist worldview, which is to say really a Christian worldview, and, and they're, they're portrayed as, as hypocrites or as being backwards and misogynists and whatever. That's how they're portrayed in the books that are in the library and the schools. How are we seen? Are we seen as complainers? Are we complaining just like the rest of them? Are we giving thanks? Are we pleasant, graceful, favorable attitude having people? God's will for you in Christ Jesus is for you to have that pleasant and graceful and favorable attitude. I'm not saying you should always be smiling and be an NPC, right? Because it's hard. That's the Gen Z word of the day, if you didn't pick up on it. But at all times, in all circumstances, this pleasant, graceful, favorable attitude that was in Christ should be yours. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, however you speak or however you behave, that's word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is not moralism or legalism. This is an outflow of who Christ is and what he has done, what he has poured in your heart. This is the outflow of, uh, uh, of his identity that is sealed in your heart by the Spirit, demonstrating itself out in this kind of thankfulness. 
Notice what 3.15 says in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You see where, where Christ is ruling, right? Christ is ruling by His peace in your heart. That's your inner man. To which indeed you are called in one body as a church. Therefore, what comes out of it? What comes out of it? Because Christ is ruling in peace in your heart. The peace of Christ is ruling in your heart. What comes out of it? Be thankful. Thankfulness comes as an outflow of Christ ruling in your heart. Friends, it's, it's evident. Satan wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your joy in Christ because he can't steal your salvation. You are saved. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and you have repented from sin, you are saved. And no one can snatch you outside of, out of his hand. Satan knows this. He can't take you out of his hand. He can't unsave you or make you unsavable again. You're saved. So he is constantly trying to steal your joy. And the world wants you to rely on its wisdom. Wants you to rely on yourself. And it's constantly giving you information to be, you know, be self-reliant, to read self-help books and read uh, realistic fictions, uh, whatever that means, right? It's like the world is constantly trying to get you to rely on yourself and your efforts. Because it doesn't know the everlasting power of Christ. That is a work in you. And your flesh is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. So it just wants more and more and more and more and tempts you to be ungrateful because the desires are not being met and at the same rate as, as they're coming. Like the flesh is saying, I want more, I want more. And you can't give it what it wants uh, all the time and uh, as fast as it wants it. So it's constantly tempting you to be ungrateful and complaining. Friends, but God's will, Paul says, God's will for you is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. And it is His will that is accomplished in Christ Jesus. This will has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. Christ came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, got crucified, took the wrath of God that was for us, that was due for us, gave us His righteousness, defeated death by His resurrection, ascended to heaven, and He is coming back to take us home with Him. This has been accomplished. 
in Christ Jesus. God's will has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. God's will for you to rejoice always and to have victory over the enemy that is always trying to steal your joy. Christ has defeated the enemy. So you can rejoice always. Christ has become the source of your dependence for eternal life. And therefore the world, Christ has taken you from the world and has made you His. So the world cannot have you. Even though you live in the world, you are not of the world. And Christ has given you His Spirit so that you can mortify the deeds of the flesh. And this has been accomplished. You don't have to accomplish it on, on your own. It's not something that you have to toil to accomplish. You just walk in faith in Him. So be encouraged. Have faith in Him who is faithful. Ask for grace and endurance. Make yourselves known by this kind of reputation as a church. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we get to call you our Father. Not everyone gets this privilege, but only those who come to Christ in faith and repentance, who partake in this new birth, new life that the Spirit brings by regeneration. So as our Father who are in heaven, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for bearing our sins. Thank you for not counting our iniquities and sin against us, but instead you've laid it on your Son, Jesus Christ. And you have given us the gift of faith so that in trusting in the name of Jesus, we can walk in joy. We can walk in peace. We can walk in love and be known as those who rejoice always, who pray without ceasing, who depend on your grace and your mercy at all times, and who give thanks to you in every circumstance, whether those things are good or bad or ugly. We give thanks to you, O Lord. So, Father, give us more grace, more faith, so that we may be reliant on you and your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.